And now if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn to the book of Genesis, specifically chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10 can be a bit of a difficult chapter to follow. The good news then is it just makes you more attentive to God's word. So follow along if you would. There'll be a test that follows. Genesis chapter 10. These are the generations of the sons of Noah. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togmara. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kidim, and Dodanim. From these the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havalia, Sabta, Raama, and Sabteca. The sons of Raama, Sheba and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala, that is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lahabim, Naphtuhim, Pathrusim, Kasluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtorim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvadites, the Zermorites, and the Hamathites. Afterwards, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza. And in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. <clears throat> to Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. <clears throat> the sons of Shem, Elam, Ashur, Arpaxad, Lud, and Aram, the sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gather, and Mash. Arpaxid fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. And his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almodad, Shalepha, Hazmarveth, Jera, Hadoram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheber, 
Ophir, Havaliah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sefer to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, please use this word to teach us, to encourage us, but most of all, Lord, to change us. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I woke up this morning and thought to myself, it's about time that we have a good, practical sermon that will help everyone in the congregation. And I thought long and hard about what text to choose, and I settled on Genesis 10. Well, that's only funny for those of you that have been with us for the last few weeks. Some of you are wondering if there's a crazy preacher in the house. Why anyone would even preach on Genesis 10 might be beyond someone. But we are in Genesis 10 because last week we were in Genesis 9. And guess what? Next week we'll be in Genesis 11. But at the same time, there's a note of seriousness in my humor because Genesis 10 is a very practical chapter. It may not seem like it at first glance with a list of names, a long list of names that very few of us can pronounce. But in this text is a practical message from the Lord God about how we are to live our lives as the people of God. And even more than that, about how the Lord is at work on earth. So this morning we're going to look at three things about the call of God that comes from this text. The first thing we will see is that there comes the call of God to go to the nations. The call of God to go to the nations. That's for you, Christian, and for me. The second thing we will see is the call of God in spite of the nations. In spite of difficulties, in spite of hardships, we will see that the call of God still goes out in the world. And the last thing we will see is what gives us great hope in spite of the nations. That is that the call of God is the hope of the nations. The call to go to the nations, the call in spite of the nations, and the call that is the hope of the nations. Let's begin then by looking at the call of God to go to the nations. Now, you'll notice that there is some organization in this long list of names. The world has been exceedingly narrowed in the last few chapters, hasn't it? We recall that there were millions upon millions of sinners in the world who were so wicked that God had determined to pare the world down to eight. One extended family. Noah, Mrs. Noah, Noah's three sons and their wives. And now God is showing how the earth will begin repopulating. Now, we should not be surprised by this because we got to millions and millions from two. 
Adam and Eve. I want to remind you once again that in this text, as we see this list of names, is a reminder to you that the Bible is true and it is real. These are real nations, these are real people, and they have existed. I don't care if a PhD has not yet dug up the skull of a catheterim man. The Bible says that this is true, and that is more sure than anything else. And so we see here now this long list of men and people who come from Noah and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And first we begin to look at the descendants of Japheth. And it reminds us that the call to go to the nations goes out no matter how far the nations are. Because we see this in who the descendants of Japheth are. You'll allow me just a minute to describe for you who some of these people are in modern terminology so we can understand. This is a good time to think about this, maybe take some notes so that some of these names mean something. So, for example, one of the sons of Japheth was Gomer. We might easily get this confused with the wife of Hosea, but this is a different Gomer. This is a man. And he is the ancestor of what we would call the Celts. This is the Cimmerian, excuse me, the Cimmerian people. Not the Sumerian people, but the Cimmerian people with a C. The people who lived on the Black Sea. The Crimean Peninsula is what we get from this. And they eventually move all the way over into areas of Ireland and in the British Isles. And eventually they become the Boston Celtics. <laughs> this is Gomer. The second group that we see are the Madai. And they become the Medes and the Persians. I don't need to tell you how important they are in biblical history and how important they are in your life today. There are today now, as we speak, Persian men constructing weapons to destroy us. Does that frighten you? It should on one level, but on another level it shouldn't. Because God is in control. And if we are to go to the nations, the solution to this is not a bigger, better black ops team. The solution to this is the gospel. These are the Madai. Then there is the Javan. That he is the ancestor of the Greeks. Of all those who would live in the Ionian Peninsula and over in the Baltic region. Tiras is the father of the Etruscans, who were the very first Italians. Forget about it. This is where they come from. Togmara is the ancestor of the Armenians. Now, this is not the Armenians. Some of us like to make that mistake. Armenians is a theological group. Armenians are people that live near Turkey. And then, of course, there is another whole group of people, Elisha, not spelt like we normally see it in 2 Kings, but sounding the same. He is the father of the Hellenes. He is perhaps the ancestor of Plato, Aristotle, and those Greeks. Tarshish we have seen before. It's where Jonah tried to run to. It's as far away as Spain. Kidim is the Isle of Cyprus, and Dodanim is the Isle of Rhodes. Now, you can see we're all over the place. Russia, Ireland, Spain, Italy, 
Persia. Japheth has descendants everywhere. They are nations everywhere. Do you know what the Latin word for nations is? The Latin word for nations is gentes. We get a word from that. Gentiles. You may have heard a Jewish friend of yours refer to the goyim, perhaps in a pejorative way. That's the way they refer to Gentiles. Goyim is simply the Hebrew word for nations. These people are you and me. The Gentiles, the nations. This is a unique list that Moses has put together. There is no other list like this in history. None. No other listing of nations and peoples like this in all of the world. And it's because God has a purpose in this list to remind us that from east to west, north to south, we all come from one family. Every single one of us is descended from Noah. Every single one of us is descended from Seth. Do you think about that? There are no more Cainites anymore. There are Canaanites, but there are no more sons of Cain. They're gone since the flood. And so we need to be reminded that God knows everyone. Every nation is, in a sense, our cousin. Why might this be important? Because if we understand this, then racism has no place at all in the Christian church. Everyone is your brother. And not just in some sort of ephemeral, Jesus said something about it, so I suppose I must do it way. You are blood related to every race on the face of the earth. Every nationality, every place. That gives you an interest in what is happening in Africa. An interest in what is happening in Asia. Not just that it would be good to do missions. These are your brothers, your sisters, your cousins, your aunts, your uncles. They speak different languages. They wear different clothes. But we are related. Japheth is spread throughout the world. And this puts in front of us two competing principles that we must balance. The first is the principle that we will see over and over and over again in Genesis. That of separation. Of the godly being separate from the ungodly. Of the movement toward holiness. Of rejecting sin. And not taking part in it. But at the same time, this separation is not a principle of exclusion. You see, the problem is when separation becomes less about being holy and more about us versus them, we have lost the principle of God being the Father of all nations. No matter how far away they are, we are to go. And there is a missionary gospel call in this chapter 10. Perhaps one of the most powerful calls in the Scripture. You shake your head, what? I don't see it. It's a bunch of names. What's going on here? Look with me at verse 5. From these, that is from all of these names we've been reciting, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language by their clans 
in their nations. Some of you may have the translation, the islands, the coastlands, the islands. It's the same Hebrew word. And what you need to know about this is it's less about geography. I grew up on what is the largest freshwater island, I think, in the world. It's a place called Grand Island outside Buffalo. That's not what Moses is talking about here. He's, the reason why it could be a coastland or an island is he's just simply talking about places that are really far away. We get that from the list, right? Ireland, Iran, Spain. And by, the Bible uses this term for distant places as the way to describe how the gospel will sweep over all of the world. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Isaiah, chapter 41. And we will see here that Isaiah, the prophet of the gospel, whose message is so clear that Isaiah is often called the gospel of Isaiah, as opposed to the prophecy of Isaiah, in chapter 40 begins the story of God's servant, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, and how he will go throughout the world and his word will go forward and his word will conquer. Where will it go? Look with me at chapter 41, verse 1. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach. Let them speak. Let us draw together near for judgment. Look again at verse 5. The coastlands have seen me and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Now look down at chapter 42 and verse 4. The servant of the Lord God, His chosen servant in verse 1. In verse 4, He will not grow faint or be discouraged until He has established justice in the earth. King Jesus will reign. Will He not, people? Where will He reign? In this itty-bitty group called the church? In America, as we set up a messianic kingdom? No, He will reign where the coastlands wait for His law. All over the earth, the people of God are waiting for Jesus to come back. How will they know? How will they hear? How will they believe? Paul tells us they will only believe if a preacher is sent and the Word of God is brought to them to tell them the story of Jesus. You see, this great spread out group is a call to you today to take the word of Jesus Christ to the nations. And how blessed are we? 200 years ago, we would have had to sell everything we own, get on a creaky boat that we were not sure was going to make it. We might get any form of diseases. We weren't sure if we could eat. We might die in the weather. Today, you can go home and flip on a device called a computer. And you can speak to people in Korea, in China, in Japan, in Africa, all over the world. Now, don't let me dissuade you from going there in person. God may be calling one of you here, two of you, a dozen of you today to go out on the missionary field. You may not know it. Some of you may think you're already past the missionary field. You may need to be repurposed. But even if you do not go out on the field, 
You have a missionary field. And even if you don't know how to use a computer, the youngest among us, I imagine, have friends, neighbors, schoolmates who come from all over the globe. We have one of the most international cities in America. The nations are coming to you. God has a mission for you. To tell them that we are brothers. To tell them that we come from one common ancestor. To tell them that we have one God who has one purpose and who sent one Son that we might be brought together as one people, diverse yet united. This is what God has done. This call here from Isaiah, chapters 41 and 42, you may or may not know it, was one of the reasons that Columbus sailed the ocean blue. He read this and he wanted to go to the coastlands of India and then later the Americas with the gospel. This is what God has done to call us to go. Now you may say, well, this is all well and good for you to call me to go, but it's pretty hard. I can't even get my neighbor to pay attention to me. Every time I start talking to him about church or the Bible or Jesus, he brings up football or the weather. Or he remembers he's got an appointment to go to. It's so hard. The answer to that is, yes, it is. Don't be kidding yourself. Bringing Jesus to the world is not easy. It does not do itself. God has entrusted that mission to us. And God's call goes forth not just to the nations, but in spite of the nations and who they are. And we see this in the story of the second of the sons and his descendants, Ham. Look with me again back, if you would, at Genesis chapter 10. We see here another set of nations. Cush, which is Ethiopia. Egypt, which is Egypt. Put, which is Libya, and Canaan, those who dwelt in the promised land. All of those nations in verse 7, Seba and Havalia and Sabta and Raama and Sabteka, those are the peoples who dwell in the Arabian Peninsula. Do you think we need to know anything about those people? Have you heard anything about people from Saudi Arabia in the last 10 years? Or Yemen? Or Oman? These are not just distant, wandering tribes. These are people in our newspapers every day. They're people in our towns. We need to know who these people are. Now remember here that they are descended from Ham, who was cursed, specifically his son Canaan. But it's very interesting here, because from this cursed family, the one who is to be a slave of slaves rises up, a powerful man, a man named Nimrod in chapter 8. Now, I don't know, I'm, I'm getting up in age, so I'm not hip with all of the young people things. But I find it almost hard to give you a serious point about this mighty man-warrior called Nimrod. Because when I was growing up, you called someone a Nimrod, as an insult. It was a fool. Someone who didn't know what they were doing. A weakling. Right? Now, I have bad news for you. You're all Nimrods. 
But that's okay, I am too. We're all Nimrods in our heart. Because you see, Nimrod means let us rebel. What kind of a father names their son that? Let us rebel. But you see, it exposes the heart of man outside of Christ. And that's the heart that's in you, and it's the heart that's in me, but it manifests itself in bold technicolor with Nimrod. He is a man's man. He is the one who began to be a mighty man on the earth. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. And we think to ourselves, what does this mean? And then we are reminded of Genesis chapter 6 in the story of the Nephilim who were on the earth in those days. And in chapter 6, verse 4, they were the mighty men of old. They were the prototypical bad guys. And now God has cleaned the slate. He has wiped the earth. And guess what? They're back. Not because they had children, but because they were bad guys. Not because of who their parents were. Not because of what their school system was. Not because of what their neighborhood was like. They were bad guys because of their hearts. There's a warning in there for you and for me. I'm going to speak bluntly. Oftentimes as Christians, we think we can protect ourselves and our families from going the way of Nimrod by setting up our family, by setting up our church, by setting up our country, by setting up our schooling, by setting up our hometown. Now please, do not hear me say, do whatever you want, it doesn't matter. All of those things are good. But at the end, it is God who must be at work. It is He who must protect us and our children. It is He who must use those means to bring about the fruit of righteousness. Because we all have the seed of wickedness in us. Nimrod is a man's man. And we need to be careful especially of this as men He is a mighty man, a tyrant, a conqueror. That's what that word means. And we as men can be tempted to think somehow there is virtue in being like this. You recall the commercials. They tell you how you can get man points or not. And you have to do certain things. And oftentimes, they're unbiblical things. In order to be a man's man, you must ignore your wife. That's what real men do. They ignore their wife and drink a beer. In order to be a man's man, you must be harsh, unfeeling, callous, able to throw off one-liners in a single moment. That's not what a real man is. Nimrod shows us that that kind of man's man becomes a display of wickedness. There's this interesting phrase here. Perhaps you're wondering about it as well. In verse 9, It says that Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Of course, you say that, don't you? You say to your children, oh, you're like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. No. What does this mean? I don't think what this means is Nimrod was able to bag five 12-point bucks a season. I don't think that's what that means. It doesn't mean he was a crack shot with a bow. It doesn't mean that he always was able to get his animal prey. 
Nimrod was a mighty hunter, a hunter of men. The word here, the phrase can almost take upon the connotations that Nimrod was a man who piled up dead bodies. He was a conqueror of nations, and he did it before the Lord, not in an approving way, but right in God's face. Nimrod was the prototypical man who shook his fist at God and said, well, you think you can tell us that we can now kill people? I'm going to show you how I kill people. You told us we could eat animals? I'm going to show you how many animals I can kill. He had no use for God. His wickedness was found everywhere. And it came out in his actions. Look at the kingdoms he founds. Babylon and Nineveh. Pseudonyms for violence and death. Not just in the Bible, but in secular history. His legacy we'll see later next week is the Tower of Babel. He is openly in rebellion against the Lord. And if we're not careful, in our hearts, that can be us. Because you see, there's a second thing here that we see, that the nations deceive themselves in spite of God. Not only Nimrod and his natural rebellion, but there is an earthly prosperity that we see and we sometimes mistake for a heavenly blessing. Just look at these nations in the table. Cush, Ethiopia, Egypt, Canaan, all of these places, the Hittites, the Sionites. Do you know where the Sionites come from or become? Has anybody heard of Sino, the Sino War? The Chinese. All of these nations are prosperous. They are wealthy. They are powerful. There was no nation like Ethiopia and Egypt in the ancient Near East. China has had wealth and power for century upon century. All of the Canaanites went and dwelt in the promised land, the good land. Look at verse 19. It's the only land of description that is so full and lush. The territory extended from Sidon into the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza and in the direction of Sodom and Gomorrah and Adma. It's this huge swath of land. If you were a Hittite or a Canaanite, or a Putite, or a Cushite, or an Egyptian, you would think that you had arrived, and the temptation could be that you had arrived because you deserved it. After all, why would America be this wealthy unless God were handing us blessing upon blessing upon blessing? And so we make the mistake of thinking America right now is a nation that follows after God at the very moment that we slaughter babies, at the very moment that we pervert marriage, at the very moment when we are so self-indulgent and self-fulfilled. From sports cars to handheld video games. The biggest oldest and smallest among us. And we make the mistake of thinking the reason we have everything we have is because we're doing something right. And we'd better clean up our act or God will judge us. 
Here's a scary thought for the church. We are already under judgment. Read Romans 1. What is happening today with marriage, what is happening today with homosexuality, what is happening today with the breakdown of the family is not something that leads to judgment. It is the judgment of God upon sin. We cannot trust in what we have, in what prospers us as a barometer of how we are with God. There is only one way that we can trust the nature of our relationship with God. It's not on how big our house are our big our houses. It's not in how many children we have. It's not in anything we possess or even our skills. The only way that we can know that we are right with God is if we claim the blood of Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Everything else is vanity. Everything else is loss. God sends out this call in spite of who we are as a people, in spite of the wickedness that is found in the world, in the naturalness of our sin, God continues to send out the call of His gospel. And that's because, as we see here, our final thing, that the call of God is the hope of the nations. We see it here in the sons and the line of Shem. We see that in verse 21 and following. And we see here first that God's hand is very particular in its guidance. This list is very particular. Here's a job for you to go home as a family and let the young people do. Count up the names in the list. Don't count the name in parentheses. Do you know how many there are? Exactly 70. Does that number ring a bell? Seventy Israelites go down to Egypt. Seventy elders in Exodus 24. Seventy disciples sent out by Jesus in Luke chapter 10. There's something about this number. It is a number of fullness and wholeness and perfection. Seven which is kind of a magical number, we think, but is also found in the Bible, the seven spirits of God. And ten, another number of completion, the Ten Commandments. You multiply them together, you get a complete wholeness. There's a reason why there's 70. Not everyone is mentioned. Some are skipped. You'll notice some grandchildren are described and others are not. A man will have seven sons and it'll describe only the grandsons from two of the sons. God is very selective in what He is doing. There is a purpose in what He is doing. And all of this is building up to a climax. God is starting with Japheth, moving on to Ham, then starting with Shem, being very particular, hitting every mark, because He is going to bring us in chapter 12 to one man again, Abraham. It's very particular. God has a very particular plan. Do you just 
glance over in the Bible the truth that God knows the exact number of hairs on your head. Exactly. That God knows everything about you. Everything that you have done. Everything that you will do. All of your hurts. All of your aches. All of your hopes. All of your dreams. God is very, very particular. He's leading us up to Abraham. That's why Abar is mentioned more than once. We get Hebrew from Abar. And we will see that Abraham is the great-great-grandson of Abar, and he is also a Hebrew. In chapter 11, verse 16, and 14, verse 13, God is at work preserving the line of His people, and He's being very particular about it. But at the same time, while He is being very particular, that hope is for everyone. Because you see, there is a reminder here that no one is beyond the grace of God. That Abraham has a message for everyone. He is the father of all the faithful. There is hope for all in the midst of sin. God reminds us that we cannot flee from the judgment of sin. We can only flee from sin. Do you notice something odd here about chapter 10. Look with me at verse 1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. Now glance down and look at the last verse of chapter 10. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. It's like bookends of judgment. The judgment of God falls on everyone. Whether you live in Ireland, or in China, or in Africa, or in America, wherever. We must remember that the judgment of God is found. We must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and die to rebellion and repent of building our own kingdoms. We must not follow Nimrod's footsteps. We must repent of our self-centeredness and we must repent of ignoring others because they are not like us or they are far away from us or they are difficult for us to deal with. You must repent of this and cast it off. Because you see, this story, this genealogy is leading to a climax of hope. But it's not Abraham. He's just a way station. Turn with me, if you would, as we conclude to Luke, chapter 3. Luke gives a very similar genealogy. It's a bit more focused because it's just Shem. And he says here, beginning in verse 34 with Abraham. Now, he's going in reverse. He talks about Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Kainan, the son of Arphaxed, the son of Shem, the son of Noah. But who is it that all of these sons of lead up to? Well, you have to go back. 
You have to go back all the way here to verse 23. All of these men lead to one. To Jesus. Do you see that? God's hope, His message is focused like a laser beam. From all of the world, all of the peoples, all of the language, the only one that matters is Jesus. Does He matter to you? If He doesn't, I pray that you would repent of that now. That you would pray, Lord Jesus, help me to trust You. Help me to hear Your truth. Help me to go on Your mission. Because that is where God has focused the entire mission of the universe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you are indeed majestic. We thank you that you have given us this genealogy that describes for us how you are at work through generation upon generation. How you are at work for hundreds upon hundreds and thousands upon thousands of years. Lord, please make us go where you will call us to. Please give us strength to face opposition. And Lord, please give us hope in King Jesus. This we pray. Amen.